couple of years ago, after a month-long retreat that we did on Maui, we asked members of the local Sangha to help us take the implements of the retreat, the kitchen supplies and the, the bedding and the, all the futons and things, from the retreat center back to our home where we store them <clears throat> until the next retreat. And so a number of local Sangha members came out and helped us. And at the end of the day, when we were all done, I was looking around and I saw a basket full of leftover kitchen supplies. And so I looked through the basket of supplies and there were several boxes of cookies. So I I picked up one box of cookies and I read to some of the friends who were helping me. I said, "Uh, hey, Duke, how would you like to have a box of wheat-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, <laughs> chocolate chipless, chocolate chip cookies. And he said, there are some things in life I can do without. <laughs> Tonight, I want to speak about that capacity to do without. Because it is one of the paramis. It's one of those forces of purity in our mind called nekama or renunciation. Giving up, letting go. And it's not so much the giving up and letting go of things as it is the giving up of our greed, aversion, and delusion. And so it is a force in the mind. The, that, that, that can become a habit like any other force in the mind. The ability to let go and to feel at ease and happy, joyful with that. When we come on a retreat like this, even for seven days or for 16 days, as some of you are, we leave our familiar lifestyle temporarily We leave the comfort of home, the companionship of our friends, our favorite distractions, and we give it up. We let go. We don't rely on it for our immediate source of gratification, happiness. And we do that so that we can practice. We come here and practice, and we we take a look at the heart, at the mind, and we get below the surface of things, and we come to a different understanding, and therefore a different relationship to the conditions and the events of our life. And in some ways, we, as most of you know, contact a source of joy, happiness, well-being, almost contentment at times, that is, is not provided consistently with the things and activities of our busy life. It is in part because of letting go and understanding the how and the why of letting go that accounts for this increasing appreciation for a subtler and actually more enduring kind of happiness. The practice of renunciation entails letting go or giving up a movement from the momentary happiness of immediate sense, contact, pleasure, to transitioning from that to an understanding that our deepest happiness is not dependent on things. Now, sometimes when we hear the word renunciation or letting go, 
this image can arise in our mind of some torturous, severe, disciplinarian condition of want that spiritual seekers try to foist off on us as their path. This is not what's required. But rather, there is a way of letting go, of learning to let go, that that brings a tremendous amount of joy, happiness to the mind. Now we have these two views of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is the prince in this lifetime who became the Buddha. But first, before becoming the Buddha, he lived as a prince for 29 years within the royal palaces of his father and just enjoyed all the luxuries that India had to offer 2,600 years ago. And they were not inconsiderable. And then we have the prince leaving home and undertaking six years of the most severe ascetic disciplines, living in the open with minimal clothes and no shelter and very few friends, if any, and living on one meal a day, sometimes down to one grain of rice every other day. And it was just really severely torturing the body as the spiritual practice of the day was or thought to be that that was the path to awakening. So we have the indulgent prince and we have the ascetic renunciate And then we have the Buddha, upon his awakening, characterizing his realization of the truth as santisukha, the happiness of peace through renunciation. Now, I don't know about you, but I know which model of practice I prefer, and it's not that ascetic. And the Buddha didn't say, that you had to practice that ascetic or those ascetic disciplines. But rather, he found the way between the indulgent, sensuist, and the ascetic, renunciist. And he called that the middle path. It's important that we hear about renunciation as a practice, as a force of purity in our heart, as a goal in spiritual discipline, in part because we don't know it very well. We have very few role models of renunciates or renunciation in our culture. But it is a an energy in the mind. It's an archetypal energy, if you will, which is within us all and, in fact, is a vehicle for happiness. Renunciation, nekama, is all about letting go. And as I mentioned, it's not so much letting go of things, although that also is required, it's letting go of our attachment to them or our aversion to them our confusion about them, our misunderstanding about them. So it's really working with the mind, the heart, to let go of our identification, attachments and aversions. The Buddha said of renunciation, he said, if by renouncing a lesser happiness, one attains to a happiness that is greater, then the wise pursue that happiness which is greater. He's not saying that the way you're living is unhappiness. He's just saying there might be a greater happiness. That what you may be experiencing is really a lesser happiness. And if you understand the gradient of happiness, the qualities that make it more enduring or subtler or more freeing, If you understand that, if you have the wisdom to understand that, then it will impel you to 
or lead you to let go of the lesser happiness in order to attain, obtain, experience, realize the greater happiness. Dilgo Kinsi Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher of the last century, great Tibetan teacher, said this of renunciation, and this is an articulation of the high bar of renunciation. Renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. And with this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. Have you ever felt like your life is on a treadmill? Endlessly pursuing that which really doesn't fulfill its apparent promise, approval, profit, status, gratification. And have you ever considered what a relief it might be to step off that treadmill? I think we all have. At one time or another, we've all maybe wished for, aspired to, or or gotten a glimpse of the possibility that we just step off the treadmill and stop chasing after so many things that are empty of their capacity to be fulfilling. If you have felt that, you have felt the flickering flame of renunciation in your heart. It's important not to deny that. Even though it may look impossible, given the conditions that we live in, the society we live in, our family obligations, our civic obligations, our financial responsibilities, it may look impossible. But letting go takes place in the heart. After the Buddha's enlightenment, he lived for many years in conditions that were equal to or greater than his life in the palace. Sumptuously uh, taken care of by his many devotees. And yet, he wasn't attached. And when it wasn't there, he wasn't averse. Renunciation takes place in the heart. It's an important consideration in our proper understanding of what will be required of us. So, how do we practice renunciation? Well, one way that is so obvious, and all of us have done it for our whole life and haven't even noticed, because it is painless. Let me explain. You remember when you were a little er, a little boy, a little girl, and you had your favorite toy? Might have been a ball. Maybe you're not so little. Maybe you'd still like to have a ball or a, a, a bike or a doll or a playmate or a musical instrument or a team that you played with, a sport team or something. Remember you had, when you had that and it was like the center of your life? And you could hardly wait to get up in the morning to get to it and enjoy it for as long as your parents would let you or your caregivers would let you. And day after day, sometimes week after week, who knows how long. Where is that toy now? Where's that ball, that bike, that doll, that playmate, that... I mean, some of it may be in the attic and some of it may be in the cellar, but it's not in your heart. What happened to your fascination with that that brought you so much happiness? That was the only thing that could bring you the happiness that you just craved and indulged in. What happened to it? Your mind let go. Your heart just let go. It just outgrew it. It outgrew it and just realized 
this no longer brings happiness. Was it painful to let go of that? Most of us didn't even notice it. Renunciation doesn't have to be painful. It's not a severe imposition of taking something away from you. If you pay attention to your life, you'll see how much we're letting go all the time. Contrary to what we may feel inside, we haven't stopped growing. Or we don't need to have stopped growing. I remember when I was an early adult, I had some fascination with, as you know, John, um, the Grateful Dead. And when they toured, so die. And they were the source of my happiness, a lot. <laughs> and, you know, just that's what you did at that age. Well, that's what I did at that age. <laughs> and it was, you know, just... Well, then I got involved in the Dharma. And I was practicing and practicing for a few years. And I was on staff here. And then to my utter anticipated joy the conjunction of conditions we all would crave for occurred. The Grateful Dead were playing in Providence an hour away on the 14th day of my retreat. What could be better? You go on retreat for 14 days, clean out, calm down, open up, really get sensitive, and go to a concert. That was a surprise. It was unbearable. It was just utterly unpleasant, unbearable, disappointing. Not because the music was that different. I just was in a totally different place. In my heart. It just wasn't the source of my happiness anymore. But rather, clarity, calmness, stillness, openness, sensitivity... Not that you can't have both, but it's... Now, if we were to review our life, and we just look in the attics of our heart, attics of our mind, what would we find that we've just outgrown but haven't yet acknowledged? What habits? What friends? What beliefs? What things... What ambitions are we still carrying around as possibilities when in fact they're dead and gone and they just aren't alive in our heart anymore? If we don't do a kind of a periodic review, we'll lug this stuff around and be burdened and saddled and it'll be a source of discontentment because we haven't realized, really, that it no longer serves us. It no longer serves our aspirations, our needs, but we haven't let go yet. We haven't consciously said, you know what, it's time to put that one away. And by undertaking the practice, as we have here, as you know, we get to review our personal history in exquisite, painful detail. All the memories, all the things, all, everything you said and did and had and didn't do and wanted to do, and, and it just comes up over and over and over again. It's giving you that opportunity to finally let go. Okay. We can grow up as a way of practicing renunciation. A second way of, of practicing renunciation that is important throughout our life is to use our innate intelligence to see, to look at our life and to see what is useful and what is not. What is helpful, what is not? What is helpful and what is not? What is wise and what is not? 
and then to use that wonderful human capacity of logic and reasoning and the power to think clearly to guide our life. Let me give you an example. When I was an early adult, I used to smoke many things, including tobacco. I love cigarettes. You know, it was just, there's something about a good cigarette first thing in the morning, a cup of coffee, or, you know, at other times. And I enjoyed it. And then the Surgeon General came out with his report, spoiled the party. Said, you know, you keep smoking like that, it's, going to, it's dangerous for you. It's going to damage your health. I hadn't noticed, I hadn't noticed it yet, but I read that and I, I said, you know, if I keep going the way I'm going, there's the potential that I'm going to suffer more. And so, based on that knowledge and my reasoning and my logic and my wish to be free of suffering or freer of suffering, I gave it up. Sure, it was a little difficult the first few days physically, just, you know, the physical craving. But because the mind was so strong and so clear that this is a good thing to do, it was really easy. Now we've lived long enough to see different things that we do that cause us suffering. We say things carelessly. We do things carelessly. We do a lot of things that cause us and others difficulty. Can we look at that honestly, logically, rationally, and, and, and see that it would be good for us? Not because somebody's telling us to or shaming us into it, but just it would be good for us to let it go, to give it up, to cultivate another way of speaking, another way of behaving. Sila the practice of the precepts that we're undertaking here, is based on that understanding. That sometimes what you say, what you do, causes you and others suffering. Maybe not immediately, but maybe in the long run. Sometimes immediately, but sometimes in the long run. And if we understand that, if we can see the wisdom of that, we can modify our behavior. And we modify our behavior because of fear of the karmic consequences. I stopped smoking out of fear of the physical consequences, the health consequences. But we who are on the path of awakening have to understand that there are karmic consequences of carelessness. And when we understand those karmic consequences, it guides us to modify our behavior, letting go of indulgences that we might rather play with. The Buddha said, even though the pleasure is great, as we know, the regret may be greater. It's easy to do that which is of no real benefit to oneself, but it is difficult indeed to do that which is truly beneficial and good. It takes a lot of commitment to understanding suffering and the end of suffering, to look at your life, to see what behaviors. And it's, it's a training. It's not like you either got it or you don't. It's a training. The more you look, the more carefully you look, the more you see how to make the refined adjustments to the way you speak, the way you act so that we lay down the karmic seeds that will produce the fruit of happiness rather than suffering. It's really about, you know, exercising some control, some self-control based on insight, 
clearly observing and understanding what we do and what the consequences of it are. Sometimes, though, it's not easy. It takes a commitment to clearly recognize our aspiration. Where do you want to go in your life? As Annie mentioned last night, she realized after 10 years of practice, she really didn't have this deeply personal understanding of the insights, the three characteristics. But it's something she realized she really wanted to do. Really wanted to attain or realize in order to gain the benefit. Now, however you articulate to yourself your spiritual aspiration, is your life leading you there? Or do you need to make some adjustments? Do you need to let go of some behaviors, some activities, in order to support your aspiration? That takes commitment. It takes that steadfastness, that determination, that resoluteness and energy that Annie was speaking about last night. And when we embark on moving forward to fulfill our aspiration, we must be patient because the habits of our mind and behaviors are strong, deeply conditioned. And so, again, we need another of the paramis that Kamala spoke about, patience to put up with our habits and the persistence of our energy to steadfastly move towards fulfilling our aspiration. It can be done. In fact, there's no one who can stop you. You have a spiritual aspiration? No one can stop you. So we have growing up, we have using our inherent intelligence and making wise choices in speaking and behavior, letting go of bad habits, if you will. There's a third form of renunciation that we, we are really engaged in here, more specifically here, and that is mental discipline beginning to get a handle on, recognize, and put aside unskillful mental habits. It's, it's purifying the mind. It's, it's taking a good, clear-eyed look at how we torment ourselves, if you will, by indulging in mental habits that just cause suffering whether it's your anger, or your desire, or your fear, or your attachment, or your depression, or your anxiety, whatever it is, that's a mental habit. It's just a habit. But because we found some identity in this habit, it's very difficult to let go. The practice we've undertaken here is to see those habits clearly. Because when we do, and we see them with some continuity and some clarity in our mind, we see just how much suffering is involved. I'm sure you've seen that today. I'm sure you've seen your habits today. Now ask yourself, would it be Wouldn't it be nice to be able to let go of some of those habits? Wouldn't it be a relief to be free of some of those tormenting states of mind? 
It's obvious. The answer is, it's a no-brainer, of course. But how do you do it? It's not a matter of just saying, okay, I'm going to stop being angry. I'm going to stop being depressed. I'm going to stop being fearful. I'm going to stop being you know, anxious and fretful or judgmental or critical or self-hatred. I'm just going to let it go. <laughs> Good luck. You know, I mean, hello. It doesn't, it, it's not a matter of intention, is it? We have that intention and we still can't. This is a, this is a fantastic insight which I'm, you've all had. You can't let go. And so much of practice, the path, the journey of our practice, is to be in this place where mindfulness shows you your suffering, but we don't have the wisdom to let go. And that's where we are. We see over and over and over again how painful it is. And we just don't have the understanding yet to be free of it. It's not a matter of, I want to let go. You can't. It's not willful. It's through understanding, deeply understanding this form of suffering, the cause of the suffering, and aspiring for the relief from the suffering that will move your practice towards the understanding that makes it possible. Letting go of mental habit. I was practicing in Burma. I, I practiced here around IMS for 10 years, and then I really wanted, like Annie, I got this burning, just inflamed urgency to get with it and get to the bottom of it and see what the heck is going on here. What, is, what, can power, what can practice really do? So I went to Burma, and I was practicing in the monastery. And it's tough. It's tough. Practice is tough. Practice in that monastery is really tough. But I wasn't, I wasn't there for comfort. I wasn't there for anything but get to the bottom of this. I remember walking in the back side of this uh, building where I was staying, a little set of rooms, a little, little cottage. And I remember walking and having this thought come into my mind over and over and over and over again. I just can't do this. I just can't do this. I'm too old. I'm, t- you know, I'm too stupid. I started too late in life. I went to too many Grateful Dead concerts. <laughs> I did too many drugs. I didn't do enough drugs. I just, you know, it's just like, I can't do this. 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 You know, it was just badgering me to death. And at some point, I actually saw it, and I said, what do you mean you can't do it? You're doing it. I mean, I was doing it, but I was still, I hadn't seen that level of self-pity. Oh, poor me. Which, which, when you don't see it, will unplug you from your highest aspiration in an instant. Oh, poor me. It's just a habit. That is just a habit. Whatever, you, whatever limitation you have, it's just a habit. That you think you have, it's just a habit. It's a story you've told yourself over and over and over and over again. So often, you don't even see it anymore. You don't even hear the story anymore. Practice will reveal it. Eventually, you'll see it. You will suffer so much until you do. I hate to put it that way. Kamala keeps telling, telling me and everybody else, you're so good at dukkha. Well, it's true, but that's, that's what's required. If you really see how much suffering it is, you'll finally let go. But it's through understanding that you're suffering that you can let go. You can't let go of what you don't know you're holding on to. You don't know you're holding on? You can't let go. And so you, it, we must see it first. That's why we exhort, instruct, inspire, entice, cajole, try to get you. Just pay attention. Because eventually you'll see. 
everything that needs to be seen. And eventually you let go. Because you understand. To hold on is painful. Carlos Castaneda had a great Dharma teacher, Don Juan, who taught him that a spiritual warrior doesn't need a personal history. One day he or she finds it is no longer necessary and just drops it. The art of a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being with the wonder of being. And so we have the letting go by just growing up. We have the letting go by using our intelligence and making wise choices. We have the letting go that occurs by the continuity of paying attention to what causes pain, understanding it, and letting go. With that, letting go, or with that paying attention, we begin to I guess you'd say we begin to come to the beautiful scenery on the spiritual journey. You know, on every journey you go across country, you find these turnouts on the side of the road where there's a great beautiful overlook and you look out, you pull in and you you look out over this valley, a river valley or mountains or something like that. Well, there are places like that on the spiritual journey. They're called the upakalesis, pseudo-nibbana, where you think, I have arrived. Jhanas are one. Joy, piti, ecstasy, bliss, happiness, tranquility, equanimity, clarity, they're all signs of good practice and traps if you think that's what it's all about. There isn't any of us in the room that haven't outgrown that. Attachment to, searching for, wanting to indulge in calmness, clarity, Balanced mind, bliss, ecstasy, joy, happiness. Sure, it comes. It's unavoidable on the journey. It's unavoidable on the path. It will come. You keep practicing, you'll definitely be flooded at some point with all of these experiences. And I can almost guarantee you'll get stuck there. It is so enjoyable. It is so pleasant. It is such an utter confirmation that I'm doing the right thing. (laughs) Upandita let me enjoy them for a few days. And then he kind of pulled the rug out and said, by the way, are you noting that? (laughs) And that's all that's required. You don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to put it aside. We just have to stop indulging. Now think about that. When you're experiencing something that's very pleasurable, you don't have to turn away from it. You don't have to give up chocolate. You don't have to give up ice cream. You just have to stop indulging in it. When it's there, it happens. When it's not, Don't worry about it. Same with the spiritual goodies, as Upandita calls them. The spiritual goodies. When they're there, they're there. You experience it just like a knee pain. Just note it. Just be with it. Recognize it. Don't make a big thing of it. Just be aware of it. It will come due to its own conditions, and it will leave. If you can let it leave without any sadness, without any regret, without any attachment, without even looking for it in the next sitting, then you're beginning to be free. That's letting go. It's letting go from deeply understanding that these mental goodies, these spiritual delights, these, you know, the dessert in the spiritual store, that's all they are. They're not the basis of happiness. Not the basis of freedom. 
But the only way we can let go is first we have to experience them. Indulge in them for a while. And then see that they too are just like that toy from childhood. After a while, they just don't do it. They just don't serve you. They're not freedom. Your attachment to them is bondage. And so, it just takes letting them be. This is only possible by giving up, letting go of delusion. And this is the direction that insight practice takes us. Seeing deeply into the way things are so that we can let go of our wrong understanding. We live in this world deeply deluded about happiness, sorrow, suffering, the end of suffering, the cause of suffering. The Buddha looked around the world, the beings in the world, and he just saw that everyone wants to be happy. Everyone in this room wants to be happy. And yet the Buddha saw that we do just the very thing in pursuit of that happiness that guarantees we'll remain unhappy. Looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Why? Because we don't understand. We just don't understand the way it is in reality. And insight practice is just that. It is the movement towards deeply seeing for yourself through your own experience suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering. Vipassana is about seeing clearly. What is it that we are to see clearly? There are three conditions to all experience that are to be seen. And the first of them is that everything is impermanent. Whatever you see, do, experience, acquire, it is impermanent. Now, you know that. You didn't need me to tell you that. You know everything's impermanent. Seasons change, people are born, they die, you know, stuff comes and goes. We know that, but we don't live from that understanding. Instead, we try to put together the conditions in our life so that things will be stable, fixed, solid, financially, you know, in relationships, in governments, and economically, everything. We want things solid and dependable. And we try to do that. We try to set up our life, the conditions of our life that way. It can't happen. It's not possible. Insight is seeing that deeply in your life that everything is constantly changing. Coming into being and passing away. Coming into being and passing away. Coming into being. Initially, that's a terrifying understanding. We don't like it. We don't want it to be that way. We want to fix it. We try to avoid it, deny it, minimize it, obscure it, do anything but accept it. But it's painful. It's painful to deny reality. And if you keep paying attention, reality will keep knocking on your door. And you'll see over and over and over again. The only way to be at ease with the way things are is to accept the fact everything changes. And learn to live with it. To learn to live in harmony with the truth, the way things are. And when we do, we let go of our Delusion that things can be stable, fixed, and solid. The second condition or the second knowledge we gain from insight practice and we have deeply understood is that all condition, all experience, whatever arises is incapable of providing a stable basis for happiness. It's dukkha. It's painful. 
it's changeable, it's oppressive. Even if something is pleasant, you can't rely on it because it changes. Even if something is satisfying. You know, what's your favorite meal? Imagine your favorite meal. Sitting down having your favorite meal is so satisfying, but imagine that's all you could eat for the rest of your life. Not very satisfying. It just isn't capable. No matter what it is, we cannot rely on anything for that happiness or our happiness. This is dukkha. This is very unsatisfying, deeply unsatisfying. And as long as we're looking for satisfaction in our life, we'll suffer. Until we deeply understand that it is just not possible. But it is the understanding that conditions are dukkha. Things have this experience. Things have this condition. They are unsatisfying. They're incapable. They're unstable. They're incapable of providing this constant happiness that we're looking for. Once we understand that, and we move our life to live in alignment with that understanding, it is that understanding which is the basis for the sense of well-being and contentment, and ultimately peace in our life. The third insight or the third knowledge that we gain is that all things are impersonal. They're evanescent. They're conditioned. This body is not yours. It comes into being without your help, and it leaves no matter what you do for it. So too with your mind. It comes into being. It lasts for a while. You kind of have to endure it. You work with it as best you can, and it does what it wants much of the time. It's not yours. And the mind is not yours. You're responsible for it, but it is not yours. So too with the body. You're responsible for it, but you can't control it. It is outside of your personal domain, so to speak. It is selfless. It is conditional. It is impersonal. All that we experience is like that. It's not what we want to believe. In fact, we think, I'm in control of my life. It's my body and my mind, and I'll do with it as I please. Oh, that's suffering, you know, and until we see that and let go of that wrong understanding, it's letting go, it's renunciation of wrong understanding that frees us from struggling with reality. When we can see things as they truly are, move into an aligned relationship with it, with the truth, then we stop suffering. And it's really that that we want, to stop suffering. If we stop suffering, we'll be happy. We'll be peaceful. We'll have this feeling of well-being, but it won't be dependent on anyone or anything or any experience, but rather right understanding of the way things are. So we have renunciation by growing up. We have renunciation by making wise choices based on our intelligence. We have renunciation by getting a handle on the habits of our mind and letting go of bad habits, bad mental habits. We have renunciation by understanding deeply the way things are. We have renunciation by letting go of Spiritual goodies. There's one more. That's not the end. As we refine our understanding of the way things are, and we deeply see that things are impermanent, they're unsatisfying, they're impersonal, this knowledge or these knowledges provide the doorway to the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is a condition beyond all that is known. So, when we can let go of the known, 
we can access the unconditioned. It is a deeply transformative realization of the truth. It has a dramatic effect on the mind. Uprooting from the mind wrong belief that causes suffering. It's not just a wishful thinking. It's not something that we outgrow. But it's something that we can train our mind to realize. If we let go of our wrong understandings, we'll come to see the truth deeply. This is the goal of the Buddha's path. Awakening to the truth. Deeply realizing the way things are. Living in harmony with it. This is what we're doing here. Training our heart to let go. Let go of little things like, I want my way. You know, I want another piece of cake. Or whatever. We learn to let go of a little, little desire, little aversions, little delusions. And gradually it grows. The capacity to let go grows. In time, we can let go of it all. And when we're not relying on anything, then we can be free. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Ajahn Chah, Thai forest master, put it this way. So let go. Put everything down. Everything except the knowing. Don't be fooled if visions, sounds, likes and dislikes arise in your mind during meditation. Put them all down. Don't think a lot. Just know, this is the way things are. Right now, nobody can help you. There's nothing your family or your possessions can do for you. All that can help you now is the correct awareness. So don't waver. Let go. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. <laughs>